Section 20 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 6, Chapter 2, The Spanish Armada. To meet the threatened danger, Elizabeth took the only step she could. She supplied Henry of Navarre with money to enable him to make head against the League in France, and she made an alliance of stricter amity with the Scottish king, whereby both powers bound themselves to maintain the cause of Protestantism and help one another in case of an invasion. But though the open conflict was drawing nearer, the secret war of plots and assassinations did not abate its vigor. A plot for the queen's death was hatched in the seminary at Reims and was communicated to the Spanish ambassador in France. In England, Anthony Babington was charged with carrying out the scheme, and he soon gathered round him a band of Catholic fanatics. Their object was to kill Elizabeth, set Mary free, and make her queen by Spanish help. The plot was communicated to Mary and received her sanction and approval. The conspirators, however, had not conducted their plans with sufficient secrecy. The plot was known to Elizabeth's watchful secretary, Sir Francis Walsingham, Few things are more surprising in the history of this period than the dexterity with which both Walsingham and William of Orange organized a system of spies and obtained information of their opponents' measures. Walsingham had his creatures in every court of Europe. Even in the Jesuit colleges he had men in his pay. The perilous state of affairs and the unscrupulous diplomacy of the time had made a system of espionage a necessary part of statesmanship. When hypocrisy and deceit formed so great a part of politics, they could only be met by more profound and elaborate dissimulation. Walsingham knew of the plot at once, but he saw in it a means of implicating Mary and involving her in treasonable practices. He did not immediately apprehend the conspirators, but allowed them to go on till he could get clear evidence of Mary's complicity into his hands. In this, Elizabeth agreed. She had the courage to expose herself to the dangers of this conspiracy, which might at any moment break upon her, in order to give Walsingham time for his discoveries. The conspirators communicated with Mary by means of a man who was in Walsingham's employ. Letters passed between them, concealed in beer barrels, which were carried in for the use of Mary's household. But a copy of every letter was taken by Walsingham's secretary on the way. At last, when proof enough had been obtained, Walsingham's toils closed round the plotters. They were taken prisoners and confessed. Mary was kept in ignorance of their fate. During her absence from her room, her papers were all seized, and the evidence of her restless plotting was laid before Elizabeth. Babington and his companions were executed in September 1586. As to Mary, Elizabeth's ministers were determined to be rid of her and free the country, before the hour of its extremest peril, of the danger which her presence had always brought. Elizabeth was hard to manage in this matter. She was willing to be rid of Mary, but shrank from the odium which Mary's death would bring upon herself. At length, a commission of forty-six privy councillors and noblemen was appointed to try Mary, commonly called Queen of Scots, under the provisions of the Act passed two years before for Elizabeth's protection. Mary was taken to Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire, and the trial began. 
At first, Mary refused to answer, saying that she did not acknowledge the jurisdiction of the court over a queen, but she at last consented to plead. The evidence was heard, and on October 25th, sentence was pronounced against Mary on the ground of privity to Babington's plot for the hurt, death, and destruction of the royal person. Mary had been condemned, but Elizabeth hesitated to order the execution of a queen, a near relative to herself, who had sought refuge in her kingdom and whom she had kept for nineteen years in confinement. Parliament petitioned that the sentence should be carried into effect and that the seed plot of so many conspiracies should be removed. Elizabeth paused before she could resolve. She even made overtures to have Mary privily put out of the way, that so she might avoid the responsibility of a decision. At last she signed the warrant for Mary's execution, but gave no orders that it should be carried out. Her secretary, Davison, at once took action upon it, and Mary was beheaded in Fotheringay Castle on February 8, 1587. It is impossible not to feel a certain amount of sympathy for Mary, round whose personal history so much romance has gathered. Yet her death was necessary for England's safety. She had not spent her years of confinement as a pining captive. Her days were passed in constant intrigues and plottings. She was not merely a passive, but an active enemy to Elizabeth and to England. She represented in her own person all that was opposed to Elizabeth's quiet and to the peace of Protestant England. Of this fact she was always conscious, and hoped at every turn of affairs, not only for liberty, but for the English throne. So long as she lived, England could not offer a united front to foreign foes. When she died, the citizens of London kindled bonfires and rang merry peals of bells. A weight was lifted from men's minds, and they began to breathe more freely. Elizabeth's conduct was most unworthy, but was extremely characteristic. She professed that she had never intended the warrant to be carried into effect. She expressed the greatest indignation against Davison, who was brought to trial for contempt, was severely fined, and never afterwards received into the royal favor. She put on mourning for Mary and sent excuses to James the Sixth of Scotland. She hoped in this childish way to reap the advantage of the deed which had been done and to avoid the responsibility of the blame which it brought. Mary's death was a distinct defiance to the Catholic powers. Pope Sixtus V expressed boundless indignation. He made Dr. Allen the founder of the seminary a cardinal. He offered Philip a large sum of money to help him in his invasion of England. On his side, Philip slowly bestirred himself. He furbished up claims of his own to the English throne. Mary's death had increased his eagerness to attack England by giving him a greater interest in the result. So long as Mary lived, he must fight in her name. Now he might fight in his own. He was, however, restrained during the year 1587 by the unfavorable aspect of affairs in France. The League had not prospered so well at first as Philip II had wished. Henry III's submission to it had been too prompt. It was probable that the moderate Catholics might still win the day under the king's leadership. Their policy was to convert Henry of Navarre, the heir presumptive, to Catholicism and so to unite France under one religion into a powerful kingdom. 
This was opposed entirely to the views of Philip and the Leaguers. They wished for the absolute triumph of Catholicism under the protection of the King of Spain. They aimed at excluding Henry of Navarre and entirely destroying the Huguenots. Until it had been decided which of these parties should carry the day, Philip could not withdraw his attention from France. In 1587, troops were sent by the German and the Swiss Protestants to the aid of the Huguenots. The campaign that followed has been called the War of the Three Henrys, for Henry III, Henry of Navarre, and Henry of Guise each led his own army into the field. Henry of Navarre was successful at Coutras in defeating the army sent against him under the command of the Duke of Joyeuse. It was the first battle the Huguenots had as yet won, and filled them with hopes of their young leader. The French and German troops were cut off from joining the Huguenots by the army under Henry III, who, being anxious to settle the war peaceably, prevailed upon them to withdraw and carry on no further enterprise against the French crown. The Germans projected an attack on Guise, who had his own army under his command. Guise was, however, too strong for them. They were defeated at Ono and driven with great slaughter out of the kingdom. Thus, then, the Huguenots had been successful, and the violent Catholics had also been successful, but the moderate policy of the king seemed to be only half-hearted, and on his return to Paris he met with a cold reception from the people. His position was indeed a false one, as each of the two powerful parties in the kingdom had its determined supporters, while the king could not make up his mind to ally himself with either. He had the confidence of neither party, and in Paris an association of the citizens was formed for the aid of the Catholic princes. The people of Paris were fanatically Catholic. They had been trained by the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, and were ready again to act with decision in support of their beliefs. Henry of Guise was their idol, and he was a man well fitted to be a popular leader. He was an accomplished cavalier and a brave soldier. His appearance was commanding, and he had a rare combination of bodily and mental vigor. By his frankness and geniality he attached his soldiers to himself in the camp. By his geniality, affability, and courtesy he won the hearts of the people in the city. The king felt that he was without influence in Paris and that plots were being laid against him. He threatened vengeance, and the people summoned the Duke of Guise to come to their protection. Against the king's orders, Guise entered Paris on May 9, 1588. The king ordered his Swiss guards who were quartered in the suburbs to enter the city. The citizens, indignant at the threat, rose against him. The streets were defended by barricades, and the dismissal of the troops was demanded. Six thousand guards were useless against the fury of half a million of people. The guards were driven out, and the king fled from the city. Guise was left master of Paris on May 12, 1588, and the king found himself again obliged to undertake the destruction of heresy and to make Guise lieutenant-general of the kingdom. When Philip II's party had won this decisive victory in France, he felt that he was free to make his attempt upon England. Moreover, the daring of English seamen made it necessary for him to take some decided step to vindicate the power of Spain at sea. In April 1587, Drake sailed from Plymouth with a fleet of twenty-five vessels and entered the harbour of Cadiz. He defeated the ships sent against him, 
and destroyed some forty or fifty vessels, besides an immense store of provisions, which Philip was preparing for his expedition against England. When he had done all the harm he could, he went on to Cape St. Vincent, where he again did much damage to the ships and stores. He meant to have continued his voyage to the Azores, to wait for the Spanish ships coming home from the Indies, but his fleet was dispersed by a storm. However, he was still able to capture one of the largest of the Spanish ships, the San Felipe, laden with treasure from the Indies. With this rich prize, he returned to Plymouth on June 26th. He certainly had done his best to singe King Philip's beard, as he had vowed to do. The spoil of the San Felipe alone paid for the expenses of the expedition, and gave good profits to those who had ventured their money to equip it. It was intolerable to Philip that these indignities should be endured. His preparations were thrown back for a time, but in the end of May 1588 his fleet for the conquest of England put to sea. The most fortunate and invincible armada, as it was called, consisted of a fleet of 132 ships manned by 8,766 sailors and 2,088 galley slaves, and carrying 21,855 soldiers, as well as 300 monks, priests, and officers of the Inquisition, who were to begin their work of the conversion of England the moment the landing was effected. The plan was that Alexander of Parma was to join them somewhere in the Channel with 17,000 Spanish troops from the Netherlands. There would thus be an army of 50,000 men for the invasion of England. Elizabeth's preparations were sadly deficient. Though she had seen Philip's preparations, she had been lulled into security by feigned negotiations of Alexander of Parma. She seems to have refused, until the danger was actually upon her, to contemplate the possibility of an actual encounter with Spain. She hoped, till the last moment, that she might make peace for herself by abandoning the Netherlands to Philip. When she discovered her delusion, preparations were still slowly and sparingly made. Neither fleet nor army was properly raised or equipped. There were only thirty-four ships of the Royal Navy, containing 6,279 men. But the seaport towns sent out their vessels, and noblemen and gentlemen on every side manned all the ships they could and placed them at their country's service. With one mind and one purpose, England met its peril. If Philip's invasion had come earlier, when Mary of Scotland was still alive, it might have found England distracted. Now that Mary was dead, Philip had no longer any plea by which he could appeal to the English people. The invasion bore no religious character. It was regarded merely as an act of foreign aggression. Catholics as well as Protestants gathered round the Queen and armed themselves for her defence. The armada was long in reaching England. Its galleons and galleasses were huge unwieldy vessels, magnificent for a pageant, but hard to manage, either in a storm or a fight. They expressed the stately grandeur of the Spanish character as well as its inability to learn from the teaching of experience. Three weeks were spent in sailing from Lisbon to Cape Finisterre. Not till the middle of July were they seen off the Lizard Point. The Lord High Admiral Charles, Lord Howard of Effingham, at once put out from Plymouth Harbour with sixty ships. Charles Lord Howard, though by no means the most experienced sailor at Elizabeth's command, was well fitted for his post. He 
He was popular amongst the sailors and was both bold and prudent. Moreover, he had skill enough to know those who had more skill than himself and to follow their instructions, so that the queen had a navy of oak and an admiral of osier. Under him served such daring and experienced seamen as Hawkins, Drake, and Frobisher, men whose names were already a terror to the Spaniards and who had borne round the world the fame of English seamanship and courage. The English watched the huge Spanish fleet pass by, very slowly, though with full sails, the winds being, as it were, weary with wafting them, and the ocean groaning under their weight. Howard allowed it to pass by on its way up the channel to join with Parma. His tactics were to hang upon its rear and take advantage of its mishaps with his smaller and lighter vessels, which sailed twice as fast as the clumsy Spanish ships. The Spaniards wished to force an engagement in which they trusted to their superior weight and numbers, but the English could choose their own time to advance or retreat. From Saturday, July 20th to Saturday, July 27th, the English followed the Spaniards on their way to Calais roadsteads, inflicting on them many losses, cutting off their stragglers and taking advantage of all their mistakes. On Sunday, July 28th, the two fleets faced one another. The Spaniards lay off Calais, waiting for the arrival of Alexander of Parma. Over against them lay the English fleet, increased now to about a 140 sail, though the ships were much smaller than the heavy Spanish vessels. It was no longer possible for the English to put off an engagement. If the Spanish fleet were to advance to Dunkirk, drive back the ships of the Hollanders, which at present guarded the coast of the Netherlands, and prevented the egress of the Duke of Parma, the peril of England would indeed be great. This must be prevented. But the English commanders felt how difficult it was for their small ships to destroy the huge Spanish galleons. Considering their hugeness, said Sir William Winter, whom the Lord Admiral asked for counsel, it will not be possible to remove them but by a device. The device was soon contrived. Six of the oldest vessels in the fleet were converted into fire ships, and on Sunday night were dispatched against the Armada. A wind sprang up which drifted them successfully to their destination. A panic seized the Spaniards, some of whom had been present at the siege of Antwerp, and shuddered at the thought of the explosion of Jambelli's infernal machine. A cry was raised, The fire ships of Antwerp! The fire ships of Antwerp! The terrified sailors cut their cables in their eagerness to escape, and the ships fell into confusion. Some came into collision, some were burnt by the fire ships, the rest were driven by the wind and tide northwards along the Flemish coast. The English pursued, and on Monday, July 29th, there was a hot engagement off Gravelines. The English ships refused to come to close quarters, but poured showers of musketry on the Spanish vessels, while the Spaniards on their part shot badly and inflicted little loss on the English. The Armada suffered severely, and as the gale increased became more and more helpless before it. The English had soon spent all their ammunition, but still gave chase, while the Spaniards were driven on up the North Sea. At last Lord Howard, who had neither powder, shot, nor provisions, thought that he had put on a brave countenance long enough. As he returned on Sunday, August 4th, there blew a tremendous gale which scattered his fleet for a while, but they all arrived safely in Margate Roads at last. The Spaniards fared more severely in the northern seas. 
some were driven on the shores of Norway, some were wrecked on the coast of Scotland, some on Ireland. The miserable remnant of the fleet, after being driven by the tempest round the Hebrides, at last reached Spain early in October. Fifty-three ships only out of the one hundred and thirty-two, ten thousand men out of the thirty thousand, found their way home. Philip's projected invasion had hopelessly failed, mainly because no steps were taken to secure the junction between the troops of Parma and the fleet of Medina Sidonia. The enterprise was skillfully devised, but it was ponderous, and admitted of no modification if any calculation failed. It fell in pieces before the bold and rapid attacks of the light English vessels and the fury of the elements, neither of which it was adapted to face. If the Armada had effected a landing and had conveyed Alexander of Parma to England, it is impossible to say what would have been the result. Elizabeth's land forces had gathered at Tilbury under the command of Leicester to defend London, but they were only raw recruits, ill-fitted to face the veterans of Spain under such a general as Parma. Elizabeth, in the hour of need, showed true Tudor spirit. She went herself among her troops, and when her counsellors, through fear of Catholic plots, begged her not to show herself in public, let tyrants fear, she answered. I have always so behaved myself that under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects, and therefore I am come amongst you, as you see, resolved in the midst and heat of battle to live or die amongst you all. I know that I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart of a king and of a king of England too. The volunteers at Tilbury were stirred to deep enthusiasm, but it was well that England's fleet saved her from the risk of trusting to Leicester's generalship and the undisciplined valor of recruits. The Armada had failed, and its failure marked a decisive moment in the history of Europe. It told that the power of Spain was declining, and that England had again risen to be a great power in Europe. But this was a result not seen at once. Philip himself received the news of the fate of the Armada with his usual constancy. He did not change countenance. I sent it, he said, against man, not against the billows. I thank God, by whose generous hand I am gifted with such power, that I could easily, if I chose, place another fleet upon the seas. He did not give up his design, but only resolved to make the next attempt more wisely. But there is a tide in the affairs of men, and Philip was never destined to have leisure or means for another attempt. Affairs in France claimed his attention. A reaction against the power of Spain set in throughout Europe. England could wreck on Spain a ruinous revenge, and Philip dragged Spain into hopeless bankruptcy, by his great schemes, which were always on the verge of succeeding, but always missed that complete success, which alone was worth having. End of section 20